0: While the Taliban has always been reasonably willing to talk to the United States, they haven't been willing to talk to the Afghan government, and we really can't negotiate on behalf of the Afghans. We can facilitate a negotiation, we can participate in a negotiation, but we can't make the conclusive deals which end the conflict.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in the studio by Jim Dobbins. Ambassador Dobbins is a senior fellow and distinguished chair in diplomacy and security at the RAND Corporation. He has held State Department and White House posts, including Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Special Assistant to the President for the Western Hemisphere. He served as the Obama Administration's Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan from May 2013 to July 2014. We're also joined by FP's chief national security correspondent, Dan DeLuce. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So today, I wanted to talk about Afghanistan. Um, Defense Secretary James Mattis said Monday that the Trump administration was, quote, very, very close to a decision on the strategy review. And in the meantime, it was announced this week that the president and other principals will be meeting Friday at Camp David to talk about, among other issues, Afghanistan. So, Ambassador, after 16 years in Afghanistan, what could be on the table? What, what options do you think can be considered realistically?
0: Well, I think the options are pretty much the same as previous administrations have faced. You know, after 16 years, there's not a lot of new ideas, frankly. And uh, the choices essentially are between uh, losing and not losing. Winning is really not on the table. It it uh, clearly is beyond our capacity um, to have some sort of conclusive victory where we walk away and everything is fine. So the real choice is whether they will Lose quickly by abandoning the effort, lose slowly by uh, maintaining the current level, which is resulting in a slow decline, or not lose by making a minor adjustment upward uh, in order to restore uh, a stalemate. But
1: doesn't that just delay? That third option sounds like just delaying the losing unless one were to accept that we do that indefinitely.
0: Well, you know, Henry Kissinger famously said that um, if the insurgents don't lose, they win. That's actually the exact opposite of true. The insurgents want to overthrow and displace the government. If the insurgents don't win, if they don't displace the government, they lose. They don't achieve what they wanted. If the government remains, it wins eventually, and therefore— Sustaining a stalemate, making it clear that the Taliban and other extremist elements are not going to take over the country, and the country isn't going to descend into complete anarchy, is a form of winning. But it's a form of winning that requires continuous application.
1: Mm-hmm. Dan, I mean, one of the things that came up is, of course, you know, Donald Trump likes to make a deal. He likes to win. <laughs> but as uh, the ambassador, this third option of winning is, a, con- in essence, in many ways, a continuation of the policy of prior years of the Barack Obama administration, even prior to that. Um, Trump is looking for some other option. Does that exist? What What is he looking at?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is this is Afghanistan is, is everything Donald Trump does not like because uh, he's being told there's no easy, quick solution. There's no flashy uh, art of the deal to attain. Um, And and what um, Ambassador Dobbins was just describing would require a lot of patience A lot of perseverance. (laughs) Are you saying the
1: president doesn't have that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think even he might say that he doesn't have it. So, yeah. So then as a result, he was presented with these kind of options that Ambassador Dobbins is describing, which is, you know, kind of a modest troop increase, a certain amount of patience, uh, a certain amount of diplomatic action, trying to like get tougher with Pakistan. But uh, Trump just would not commit to it. And it was presented to him as early as May. And the Pentagon and I think the National Security Council just assumed that this would happen and this would be signed off on. And the president was not ready to do it. And he's really, really reluctant uh, for these reasons that are obvious about his personality. And, and of course, previous presidents were pretty ambivalent about all of this. So what happened? He started casting around for just about anything. And he was very receptive to some very unorthodox ideas. Uh, so you had— Eric Prince, who we all remember, the founder of uh, the notorious Blackwater security firm. And Eric Prince wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal kind of offering uh, a magic solution, which is let's give private contractors the lead. You know, we'll have a little private air force. These are all former special forces guys. It'll be cheaper. Uh, Big question (laughs) mark. Somehow it's going to be cheaper. A lot of people disagree with that. Uh, And then on the same time, uh, a guy named Michael Silver shows up at the White House. And uh, this is a, a chemical a mining executive.
1: The last name Silver. It has to be a mining. Yeah,
2: executive. I did not make that up. Uh, and he starts also kind of promising a bit of a magic bullet, like let's get to those minerals under the ground. Uh, another another great kind of way to get the president's attention, because uh, yeah, money and business uh, uh, is something that that catches his eye. But of course, none of these ideas, as we all know, are new. Uh, we heard General Petraeus talk about the the kind of Magic, miraculous potential of Afghanistan's copper and iron and rare earth, but um, to mine you have to have security so that the the mining company uh, workers aren't blown up and gunned down by an insurgency, and you need roads, and you need trains, and you need bridges, and you need tunnels. Uh, all of which uh, the impoverished country Afghanistan lacks. So, so we've heard about some of these things before. Um, and of course, private security contractors, yes, we've also gone down that path. And it didn't go very well in Iraq and, or in Afghanistan over the past decade and a half. So you have a president who is reluctant to take ownership of this kind of very grinding, difficult war effort. And yes, it's associated to some degree with Obama, another negative. Um, But on the other hand, his defense secretary, a former four-star general who he thinks highly of, his own new chief of staff, John Kelly, another uh, former four-star general whose own son, by the way, died in battle in Helmand province in Afghanistan, tragically. Uh, You know, uh, the commander there on the ground, General Nicholson. Uh, Tillerson, uh, most of his top aides are telling uh, Trump, you know, we've got to go with this kind of conventional op- option because there really isn't any new idea. Uh, and so here we are.
0: You know, I don't think it's entirely fair to argue that this is just a continuation of Obama's policy.
2: Hmm.
0: Obama's policy was to make a short, intense effort and then to get out regardless of the consequences and regardless of the results of that effort. And so he surged troops in Afghanistan, but he set a deadline and withdrew them on, uh, on schedule. He announced in 2014 that all American troops would be out by the end of 2016. Now, uh, three weeks after he made that announcement, the Islamic State burst out of Syria and marched to the very outskirts of Baghdad, illustrating what happens if you abandon one of these campaigns in, in, in mid-effort, and uh, Obama pulled back from uh, his uh, commitment to withdraw entirely and left a minimal force there of uh, around 8,500 American soldiers, which was never assumed or intended to be a long-term commitment, but simply to push the issue on to the next administration. So I think Trump can, if he chooses, differentiate himself from Obama by not setting deadlines, by recognizing that this is a long-term slog, by continuing to seek a negotiated settlement with the Taliban, but to make clear that we'll stay and stick with it until that can be achieved and avoid setting uh, deadlines.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's one of the things we talked about yesterday in the office. I mean, Trump really hasn't mentioned, I don't think he's mentioned the word Taliban. Do you think that he, you know, he believes in the art of the deal? Do you think he would consider um, pushing for negotiations with the Taliban? Is that something in his repertoire?
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's quite within his repertoire. I mean, the Taliban is certainly – given the the people he's willing to associate with and uh, collaborate with, including the president of the Philippines, um, the the president of uh, Russia, and a number of other uh, somewhat dubious characters, um, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be willing to deal with the Taliban. Previous administrations have been willing to do so, at least the Obama administration – and I think it is uh, one of the issues that's on the table and will be discussed this weekend when uh, when, a, when the Trump and his principal advisors get together. I don't sense that there's a great deal of resistance to the idea. At least we haven't seen anything which suggests that this is a, anathema to somebody. But the problem is that while the Taliban has always been reasonably willing to talk to the United States, they haven't been willing to talk to the Afghan government And we really can't negotiate on behalf of the Afghans. We can facilitate a negotiation. We can participate in a negotiation – um, but we can't make the conclusive deals which end the conflict. Only the Afghans can do that.
1: That's actually an interesting thing. Everyone's been so focused um, the past few weeks in Washington on what Trump will do, on the Eric Prince plan, on all these different things going on in Washington. What have um, what have you seen coming out of the Afghan government in, in terms of they had any sort of, you know, we've had these ideas floated in the press. Has there been any public reaction that, that you've seen?
0: I think they've. I, I think Ghani has kept a low profile. Uh, um, uh, clearly, the, the the Eric Prince plan and, uh, was a non-starter. I think he'd be delighted to see an effort to build the American presence around exploiting mineral welfare, uh, mineral resources, and uh, and creating the possibilities of that. China has already bought into that and has made significant investments. But as we've heard, um, until there's both peace and more infrastructure, that's not likely to yield great uh, revenues. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, please go well, ahead.
2: this uh, whole issue of negotiation and, and trying to cut a deal with the Taliban has is, is always been this, this, you know, key question and this kind of elusive uh, prospect. And, and what's interesting is there's all this discussion about troop numbers, um, right now and also in the past, and, and there were there's huge battles um, in the Obama administration in the first term about whether to send in more troops. But you don't hear from the Trump White House much about how they would like to encourage or foster or nurture a brokered peace settlement. I mean, implied in sending more troops and kind of staying the course and not having a deadline for withdrawal is trying to put military pressure on the Taliban to the point where there's a negotiation. Um, but I certainly don't see a lot of talk about that. The attention is on this kind of, you know, um, power struggle and these, these arguments between, you know, Bannon, who's favoring these kind of Eric Prince ideas, and then McMaster and Mattis, who want a more conventional approach. But I don't, I don't hear a lot from the State Department. And of course, then we're back to that whole question of where is the State Department in this administration?
1: Where is the State Department in all of this right now?
0: Well, I think, I think state and defense are both lined up uh, in favor of the policy that Mattis and McMaster have, uh, have espoused, which is a modest increase of 3,000 to 4,000 additional troops um, in order to uh, better advise and, uh, and assist the Afghans in their continued fight. The intent is to try to, um, to sustain Afghan efforts— but the troops level that was set by Obama meant that one of the four corps, uh, the basic, uh, the countries divided into four army corps, and one of those corps wasn't getting American advice and assistance um, because we simply didn't have the personnel that was necessary, and that was the corps that collapsed and led to significant taliban gains in helmand and kandahar provinces so at least a significant part of the additional troop presence is to ensure that that we can have a countrywide effort to advise and assist the uh, afghan armed forces
1: mm-hmm. let's talk about the eric prince plan for a second i mean part of what is perhaps so shocking about it is simply how public he's been about it. Um, Starting off with the editorial, he proposed the idea of a viceroy. And so as part of his media tour, he came in here to the foreign policy offices and did an interview with us and said, my advocacy of a viceroy is not really a viceroy. I would call it more like a bankruptcy trustee or a lead federal official. When you put a business into bankruptcy, there's one person, the court appoints a trustee who is in charge of rectifying the situation, cutting away, stopping bad decisions, bad spend restructuring, cutting the overhead, focusing on what the basics are. Um, it, it almost, you know, one would think that if they're trying to really compete for contracts, and you'd almost want to keep a low profile. And He's gone the opposite route. It, it's as if he has an audience of one in the end, as if Donald Trump is that audience. Is that your impression, Dan, or is there something else at work here?
2: Um, I, I think it's probably that simple. Um, and he's certainly got a Steve Bannon's attention and maybe a couple other people inside the White House. And this idea has not gone away. Um, It was definitely dismissed by most of the rest of the administration and the Pentagon and the State Department and so on. But it hasn't gone away. And it's to the point now where you hear some people uh, in Congress saying, uh, you know, tentatively, maybe we're going to have to do something as lawmakers just to preempt... Any kind of radical role for security contractors that would sort of, you know, uh, kind of undo the lead role of the U.S. military. I, I think it is interesting. Prince has been very active on Capitol Hill. He's advocating it there. He's been all over cable television. So, yeah, he must – he he believes this is somehow still a live idea. Uh, and he's not – he's obviously not shy about advocating. It. And, of course, his sister is in the cabinet. Don't
0: forget. There already is a role for of private course. contractors, a rather significant one. I think there's probably as many contractors um, to the U- to the Defense Department in Afghanistan as there are American soldiers, um, performing a variety of logistic, but also some security functions in terms of securing bases. Um, uh, I, I think the, the larger role that seems to be proposed by Eric Prince has... I don't think it can really be taken very seriously. First of all, I can't imagine that our allies are going to continue to station several thousand German, uh, British, French, Italian, you know, Scandinavian troops under some, you know, under the command of some private contractor. The allies are providing about 25 percent of the military manpower and considerably more than 50 percent of the economic and security assistance. Um, including the money for the Afghan armed forces. And I I can't see them continuing uh, that level of support under an arrangement in which the U.S. essentially abdicated the lead role. That's one consideration. It's also not clear what kind of legal arrangements would permit a mercenary force with proactive combat uh, responsibilities U.S. forces have immunity in Afghanistan, but that's because to the extent they misbehave, they'll be disciplined and punished by the U.S. government. But there's no mercenary um, contractor capacity to discipline um, uh, forces under its control, uh, short of just firing them, uh, as we discovered when Blackwater killed several dozen Iraqis in an unnecessary firefight uh, back uh, a decade ago in Iraq.
1: But if we go back, uh, this is certainly not a defense of the Prince plan, but if we go back to where we started from at the beginning of the podcast, there does seem to be this real sense of deja vu. You know, we were joking, you know, we could just save this and, you know, replay it in a couple of years. If the best option is simply sustaining the status quo, is that – and it, should that be an acceptable pol- option for politicians? Um, it hasn't appeared – um, that the Afghan military has really evolved that much over the past number of years. It's not clear that sort of, the revenue-producing powers of the central government are that much better. Do we just accept this is what we do indefinitely?
0: Well, the Afghan armed forces have certainly evolved from 2001 when we arrived, well, Certainly since yes. there weren't any. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, uh, and we were very slow to begin developing um, an Afghan. Uh, military and police force. So I think that they have made progress. Now, I think there's a, a good argument to be made that that we never really fully committed to the idea of, of creating, sustaining uh, an indigenous uh, capacity in the security sector, that we were always looking for shortcuts, that we were always trying to do this more quickly than was reasonable, um, and that recognizing that this is a, a long-term effort that's not going to pay off quickly um, you know, can can help. The other thing we haven't discussed, of course, is the broader international context, the role of Pakistan, but also of Russia and Iran and China. The Most of Afghanistan's neighbors would like to see a stable Afghanistan under moderate leadership. But Pakistan may be an exception in that regard, but certainly uh, Iran, China uh, and Russia would but at least uh, Iran and Russia also have concerns about the United States, about the relationship with the United States. And they have the capacity to disrupt anything we want to do in Afghanistan if they really are incentivized to do so. So, uh, so part of the process of stabilizing Afghanistan and ultimately moving to some kind of peace process does require uh, an effort to engage with both Russia and Iran on uh, Afghanistan. They've been quite helpful in the past. They are rather unhelpful today, largely, uh, 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 and this is largely a reflection of their larger disagreements with the United States on on unrelated issues. But that's, that's also a, a strong element of any coherent policy. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in the midst of that, we
1: have a Trump administration, which has, you know, been very hostile about Iran, threatening to decertify it in the next review for the nuclear deal. Um, relations with Russia are at this very weird point because, in the midst of an investigation, um, there's a lot of concerns about any contact with Russian officials. So, do you see any hope of having that sort of multilateral international support for a settlement, or is this all just going to be pushed off?
0: I don't see it around the corner. I mean, I think that I, I think Trump and his and Tillerson uh, would. Would like to have a better relationship with Russia and would be prepared both with and are already in positive discussions regarding Syria and would like to get into positive discussions with respect to Afghanistan. I think there's a disinclination to do the same vis a vis Iran, a sort of general view that Iran is evil, bad, and to be opposed on every battlefield under every situation. Tillerson has not uh, renewed the relationship that uh, Kerry had with the uh, Iranian foreign minister. and I think in, uh, and I think that' that's, uh, that they'll have to learn that lesson eventually that they're going to have to engage with Iran as well as Russia and China um, and Pakistan, of course, um, in any effort to stabilize Afghanistan and promote a peace process. Mm-hmm.
1: So coming back to the Camp David meeting, are you a betting man, Dan? I mean, what what, what do you? I mean, we can all sort of guess how this can proceed. I'm sure we'll see lots of reports of you know temper tantrums and people arguing. But do you think we'll see a proposal out of this?
2: Uh, I I don't like to predict. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't like to predict, but I think it is sort of becoming crunch time and. It's so it's hard to imagine that he just f- forever puts off a decision. And
1: Mattis I mean, did say very, very soon. I, I, I can't believe that he, this defense secretary just sort of pulled that out of the air.
2: Yeah, and e- exactly. Mattis did say that. And the other thing is that it is kind of – it would be an incredible um, uh, kind of eruption and, and, and uh, rift if Trump were to defy his defense secretary uh, who's quite influential – and has a very pretty, you know, pretty hefty reputation and status. Uh, defied his chief of staff, uh, defied the national security advisor, basically the military and the State Department on this issue in favor of this kind of very um, ambiguous, tenuous, very uh, questionable uh, alternative. That's not even clear what is the Eric Prince alternative. So it's hard to imagine him actually. You know, he's flirting with these alternatives. That's one thing. It's another thing to actually just defy, defy uh, the military on this and Mattis. I, it, there would even be a risk that Mattis would resign, I think. I think that would not be out of the realm of possibility. So I still see that as a more remote scenario than him not going with basically some, some version of what's being proposed, uh, this modest troop increase, this kind of diplomatic um, tougher line with Pakistan, however that comes out. Uh, You know, a bit more air power, a bit more, you know, bit wider uh, authorities for the commanders on the ground. But it is a test because he will have to take ownership of this. He will not, you know, there was, I think there was a very interesting tension between him and Mattis on this because you had a situation where he told Mattis, okay, you can, I'm giving you the authority to have nearly 4,000 additional troops in Afghanistan beyond the 8,000 or so that are there. And instead of taking that and running with it, Mattis said, no, I'm not going to deploy those troops until we have a strategy that you, Mr. President, sign off on and agree on. And I thought that was a really clever – it's a really clever move by him, very interesting moment, and it's kind of a power struggle. And Mattis has dug in his heels, and he's basically – put the ball back in the court of the president and that the president is going to have to own this and he can't just distance himself from it and say oh you look the military lost this war effort that's too bad um you know but it's not my fault um, and 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 you see this on other issues, right? So on the Iran deal,
1: he did certify Iran. He, yeah.
2: he did certify uh, Iran was in compliance with the with the nuclear agreement, but it was very reluctantly. There were all these accounts of him being unhappy and kind of almost throwing a tantrum about it, despite the fact that he's getting this advice from um, most of his cabinet to sign off on it. So there is this pattern where he, he wants to kind of score some political points, perhaps domestically, or he wants some kind of easier, cleaner solution. And when his advisors don't bring it to him, he gets very frustrated. And of course, some people are are encouraging him in that, like Stephen Bannon. So this is, this is not unique to the Afghanistan
0: issue. I think you also have to consider the congressional attitudes, which... Uh, I I wouldn't say that there's, you know, wild enthusiasm in the Congress for the conflict, but there's remarkably little opposition. Most senior members of Congress, both houses, have been to Afghanistan repeatedly over the last 16 years. They know what's at stake. uh, They understand the strategy. They understand the dilemmas. um, and And there's very little pressure on the administration to cut and run. Obama at one point in a meeting I was in, you know, said, uh, you know, Afghanistan today is more unpopular than Vietnam ever was, Mm. which was a jaw-dropping statement um, and just indicated that he had been in kindergarten in Indonesia during the Vietnam War. (laughs) And Um,
1: wasn't aware of just uh,
0: And it was funny because he was sitting next to John Kerry, who uh, had several medals uh, and came back as a major opponent of the war. Uh, and, uh, and Chuck Hagel, uh, who also had fought in Vietnam, uh, <laughs> neither of them raised any objection. We just rolled our eyes. But, um, uh, and I got in a bit of trouble when I, when I said that uh, on the contrary, I had consulted very closely with the Congress and my responsibilities as a special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan across the political spectrum in both houses and found overwhelming support uh, for the course and concern that we that Obama might be uh, about to withdraw from Afghanistan. so um, so I think we also need to consider that Congress, at least significant elements of Congress would first of all not fund uh, a transfer of responsibility to That's Blackwater right. or its current successor, um, and would uh, resist, although they probably couldn't prevent a, a, a withdrawal of American forces if if the president uh, if the president decided on it, um, so I think that that the if there's a consensus in Congress, um, it's for more of the same. Uh, they may be reluctant to put it that way, um, but uh, but I don't see any groundswell of opposition to the war.
2: That's true. That's true. What's interesting, I think, too, is that it's actually how little political traction Afghanistan has. Full stop. Yeah, there's
1: no up for the president. That that doesn't appeal to his base, to pull out, to stay. It doesn't have an effect.
2: It's amazing to me how little attention this gets paid. Um, And there's also another issue, a question I always come back to for years now, which is it seems to me the U.S. government as a whole, and and, and I would include the media as well, has failed to articulate what is at stake in Afghanistan. There's been attempts— but even with Obama, he made this very big speech when he said, OK, I'm going to you know, surge these additional troops in and so on. But then he kind of dropped it. You didn't hear him talking a lot in public saying, this is why we are fighting here. This is why it's worth all this money. This is why it's worth taking casualties and even losing lives because we have something at stake here. You really hear that, and you kind of got into little more petty arguments that are very Washington-centric about whether he, you know, the president has spine, or whether the military is being listened to. Um, But I, I I do think it's incumbent on on this administration, as it was in previous, to do a better job of trying to explain why we're still there after 16 years. Why is it worth it? Is it because that if we allow the Taliban to take hold or even topple the government in Kabul, we recreate a sanctuary for terrorism, for al-Qaeda, and so on, that ultimately threatens the U.S. and the West. I assume that's roughly the case.
1: It's funny. One of the the reports that came out in the press was that President Trump had at least flirted with the idea of withdrawal. But I actually don't see anyone, any of his aides on any side of the spectrum pushing for that. Is there anyone who is— Well, Bannon, maybe.
2: Bannon might at least entertain the idea in theory, although he seems to be attracted to maybe magic bullets like uh, Eric Prince. The the other thing about Bannon is I think he's very interested in the mining because that plays into his um, kind of fixation on China and this idea that the U.S. needs to protect its economic interests in this kind of global economic war with China. And so we can't lose out on mining interests.
0: And the view that we should have taken Iraqi oil while we were there.
2: Well, this is something Trump has talked about. Um, so, but but no, you're right. There isn't that you don't see a groundswell uh, in the administration to withdraw to to leave. Mm-hmm. So,
1: if the best possible alternative is some sort of continuation of the status quo, do we are we having this same conversation a year from now? Is the reality on the ground any different, or is the presumption that we hopefully start negotiations with the Taliban?
0: I think the most likely course of action which would lead to negotiations is not to be too impatient, um, uh, not to expect them uh, too soon, uh, and not to count on them as, uh, as, a, as a way of resolving our own dilemmas. Uh, I think once we persuasively adopt a course which indicates that we favor negotiations but don't need it, um, uh, there's a good chance that they'll occur. Well, of course, patience has not been
1: one of the high points of this administration, but we'll see. Um, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you for joining us on the ER, Ambassador. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Um, Please join us next time. In the meantime, if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.